Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and this episode is all about the streets. And no, I'm not talking about the early 2000s UK rap outfit. Street vendors are an essential part of LA's food scene, but street vending itself has only been legal since 2018, and the road to get there was full of dramatic twists and turns. And even though street vending is technically legal in LA today, there are still lots of issues with the rules that govern the way vendors are allowed to earn a living. Today, I'm going to give you a quick and dirty rundown of the recent history of street vending in LA, and I'll then be joined by Rudy Espinoza, Executive Director of Inclusive Action for the City. Rudy and his organization have been instrumental in advancing the plight of street vendors over the last decade plus. He tells us about the journey, how far the fight for street vendors has come, and what's next. So without further ado, let's chow down. What do you think about when you think about street vending in LA? Maybe you think about the last time that it hit 100 plus degrees and all the snacks you had at home kind of sucked. So what did you do? You went outside and uh, you looked at the corner of your block and you saw that street vendor with the colorful umbrella selling fruit, refreshing, ice cold, watermelon, melon, mango, whatever you want. Maybe you think about the last time you went to go see Carly Rae Jepsen or your favorite artist at one of LA's many concert venues. And yeah, you were starving, but you also didn't want to spend an exorbitant amount of money on the kind of crappy concessions that the Greek theater or wherever you were had to offer. So what did you do? You waited until after the show when you knew that a street vendor would be waiting for you with one of those delicious bacon-wrapped hot dogs with peppers and onions with a little bit of mayonnaise that only cost a few bucks. Yeah, yeah, that's what you did. When I think about street vendors, I think about when Cousin Saul and I used to live in Echo Park. Now, you know Cousin Saul as an occasional contributor to this podcast who has very bad takes, but I know him as my former roommate. We lived in a very poppin' part of Echo Park. We were within walking distance of all of the greatest hits. We could walk to Dodger Stadium, but we could also walk to Little Joy, to the shortstop, to Gold Room, where I was once kicked out for attempting to breakdance and failing to impress anybody, including the security. One of the memories that stands out to me about that time living in Echo Park was a pupusa vendor that used to set up at the corner of Sunset and Porsche right outside of the gas station. You know, the one with the We Got It Mart. There was a pupusa vendor that set up there most nights, and I honestly wouldn't be able to tell you if those pupusas were any good, but I can tell you that they saved my life on numerous occasions. I remember rolling up there, you know, after a long night crawling through the bars of Echo Park and desperately needing something to sop up the booze and scrounging through my pockets for whatever loose cash and change I had in order to buy one, two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe seven pupusas. And the gratitude I feel for that vendor, you know, 
has never left me. Now, I would have known at the time that street vending was technically illegal at the time. We're talking about this was probably around 2015. But I didn't really think too much about it. I remember the first time street vending being illegal actually entered my consciousness was when I was reading about Gorilla Tacos uh, in the Los Angeles Times. Gorilla Tacos, when it started out, was a very, as the name suggests, guerrilla project by a chef we all know and love today, Wes Avila. He was a fine dining chef who, as I understand it, kind of just got sick of selling his food in fine dining establishments and took to the streets to start selling some kind of wacky and out there taco creations that were absolutely delicious. You know, he was doing things like putting duck carnitas in in his tacos and just going to the farmer's market, seeing whatever tickled his fancy and finding some amazing, awesome way to treat those vegetables and throwing them in a taco. And he was selling these in the arts district. He didn't even have a truck at the time. This must have been like 2014. And he was getting harassed by law enforcement. Law enforcement was shutting him down. Uh, and this was not just any street vendor. This was a street vendor that was kind of hot at the time. You know, He was uh, written up in uh, the Los Angeles Times by the late, great Jonathan Gold. And I remember going to have lunch at Gorilla Tacos was kind of a... Uh, like exciting experience because you never knew exactly if he was going to be there. There was always this danger that he was essentially not going to be able to be there because law enforcement had shut him down for the day or that he had relocated somewhere else for the day and you weren't going to be able to find him. Now, as entertaining as that may have been for me and some other twisted consumers, That is a massive pain in the ass as a vendor. As a vendor, as anybody, imagine going to work and not knowing if the place where you go to work is going to be the place where you also finish work for the day. Because there's the danger that at any moment, law enforcement can come up to you and can give you a fine for being there, can confiscate your things, and in some cases, can even arrest you. I mean, can you imagine if you set up, you know, whatever email job you have, you've got your laptop, you're set up, you know, at a table on the side of the street, and all of a sudden, police comes up to you and says, sorry, man, you can't be here. You're like, what? Why why not? And they're like, oh, you're giving me some attitude. Okay, well... Here I go. I'm going to take your laptop. Here's a nice fine for you. And, uh, you know, if you give me any pushback whatsoever, even just, you know, as far as making a good argument as to why you should be here, I might just arrest you. That is insanity. So that was the first time I really became acutely aware that, wait a minute, this is actually that something that law enforcement does. This is something they go out of their way to do. And in fact, I found out that there there are times when 
law enforcement pursue street vendors more than others. You know, it happens when they're trying to meet their quotas. It happens during recessions. Usually when street vendors are at their most vulnerable, that's also when law enforcement is going going after them. So that's how it first entered my consciousness. And a lot has happened since then. And, you know, I had the, the great fortune today of speaking with Rudy Espinoza, who's an activist who has uh, been part of the fight to legalize street vending in Los Angeles. And we have an excellent conversation, um, and he gives a lot of color to, you know, what the fight has been like. But I wanted to tee this discussion up, not just with some personal anecdotes, but I also wanted to give you a quick run-through of the history of how street vending has become legal in Los Angeles. I think it's just helpful context with which to enter the conversation with Rudy. So let's take it back to 2008, okay? The Dark Knight has come out in theaters. What else? Katy Perry is like the biggest pop star on the radio. We don't hate Chris Brown yet. Um, 2008, what else is going on, you know? I mean, Obama... Obama is happening, guys. Obama isn't even president yet. He's just campaigning and, you know, getting getting our hope all in a tizzy. And what happens? Well, a street vendor gets so fed up with the harassment that they're facing in Boyle Heights that they go to a community meeting. Now, the community meeting was held by an organization by the name of East LA Community Corporation, and we'll be calling them ELAC. Now, this simple act of going to this meeting and voicing the frustration that the street vendor was having sparked an entire movement. What ended up happening is that ELAC recognized the threat that street vendors were under and came together with three other organizations to form the Legalize Street Vending Campaign. Now, the other organizations that they brought into their fold, they each had their unique superpower when it came to their ability to help the street vendors in their fight for legality. So they brought on an organization called Public Council, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm. They brought on the LA Food Policy Council, which is exactly what it sounds like. And what they were able to bring to the the fight was the ability to look at how legal street vending could increase access to healthy food and helping the street vendors make that case. And they also brought in an organization called Leadership for Urban Renewal Network, LEARN, which is now called Inclusive Action for the City. And it's the organization that Rudy Espinoza, our guest on the podcast today, heads. Now, learn at the time IAC today, they're an organization focused on economic empowerment. So their role in the fight was not just to help vendors uh, from an economic perspective. They'd also done some work in and around City Hall, so they were also able to act as a liaison between uh, between the street vendors and, and uh, City Hall itself. Now, the really cool thing is it wasn't like the street vendor went to this ELAC meeting and just handed over the keys to the problem to these four organizations. No, the street vendors were very much at the forefront of this movement. The organizations made sure 
to keep them involved at every step of the way. They held numerous town halls with them um, around that time, 2008, 2009, 2010, to understand, hey, what are the issues you guys are facing on a day-to-day basis, and how do we ensure that these things stop happening to you? So upon holding all of those meetings, they came came up with a, with a bit of a plan, and they started to reach out to lawmakers. Now, in the city of Los Angeles, when you're reaching out to lawmakers, the lawmakers you really want to reach out to, it's the city council. It's the, those, those 15 or so uh, uh, council members that operate at City Hall down, downtown Los Angeles. Um, they were able to find a couple allies on the city council who were receptive to the ideas they were bringing to the table. They found Councilman Curran Price and the now-disgraced Councilman Weezar, um, who is under investigation for corruption. But, you know, we don't need to talk about that. Basically, what happened is these two council members were receptive to the plight of the street vendors. And so, fast forward to 2013, after five years of advocacy on the part of the coalition and the street vendors themselves, Councilman Price and Weezar finally introduce a motion just to look into what legalizing street vending might even look like. Now, what happens when a motion is introduced at the city council? Basically, the motions go into legislative black holes, aka they get assigned to committees. And that's what happened here. The legislative the, the, the motion was assigned to the Economic Development Committee and a couple other committees. And what ha- ended up happening was a sort of back and forth between these committees and the chief, uh, the chief legislative office to basically look into a bunch of stuff. They kept looking into things like, okay, what, what are other cities doing uh, so that we can adopt some of the recommendations for what an L.A. street vendor program might look like? Um, and after they had looked at what the other cities were doing, you know, the, the committees went back and forth talking about, okay, well, now that we know what other cities are doing, let's iron out the ins and outs of what an L.A. An, an LA uh, policy might look like. And I know this probably sounds like, okay, well, how else do you expect policy to get made? You're right. Policy takes time. There's a lot of sausage making that happens in the background. So this is all stuff that needs to happen. The problem is it doesn't always happen with the same amount of urgency depending on who the people in need are. And that's kind of what happened here. As you can imagine, a lot of the street vendors in in question are not exactly voters. A lot of street vendors are undocumented. They're not exactly a, a powerful voice in the political uh, the political machine that is Los Angeles. They don't, you know, hold that much sway over the council members when it comes to their election time. So when it comes to political capital, well, this was an issue that Council members were happy to move forward, but it just wasn't anyone's priority. And so years dragged by of back and forth between committees and and, and various city offices trying to iron things out. And you will not believe this, but the thing that actually sparked the movement into action, into life, was the election of a certain 
orange-skinned demagogue in Washington, D.C. Yes, I'm talking about Donald Trump. So we're now in 2016, and Donald Trump has been elected. The world feels like it's burning down. And as you can recall, Trump was spewing some pretty hateful rhetoric towards immigrants, undocumented immigrants especially, and he passed an executive order that said anyone charged with a crime would become a priority for deportation. Well, that's the kick in the pants that our city officials needed in order to get their act together. In 2016, the city council took action to decriminalize street vending. Basically, what would have happened before then is you could be criminally charged for street vending. But the city council realized that if at this point they were criminally charging people for street vending, then the Trump administration could legally get involved and prioritize those people for deportations. The city council rightfully, you know, put a hand on its conscience, as we say in Italian, and got moving to make sure this wouldn't happen anymore. So... 2016, they take action, they decriminalize it. This means that vendors could no longer be arrested or charged with a misdemeanor for vending, but they could still be giving citations. So it's 2016 and we're now in a situation that's good, but not great because you can still accrue a bunch of tickets for vending. It's like, okay, look, you can park your car here, but no matter where you park, we can give you a ticket. It's not super helpful. It's like, thanks for not arresting me for parking, but... It's not exactly like, you know, going to help me that much if you keep giving me tickets that eat into the margins of my business, especially when the margins of a business like street vending aren't huge. So the campaign, the street vending campaign kept fighting. There was continued back and forth in, in, the, in the ironing out of the policies uh, that were being crafted at the city level and there were some not so great provisions that were being included as, you know, street vending was moving from decriminalization to legalization. For example, there were some provisions in there like two vendor per block caps, meaning you can only have two vendors on any given block. Um, there was the ability for property owners to, to veto street vending in front of their businesses. So, you know, if you're a restaurant that doesn't like the street vendors, <laughs> quote unquote, competing with your business, you can be like, hey, I, I literally veto them vending in front of here, which seems to draconian. And then the most tenuous part of the proposals was a vending restriction in certain sections of the city called no vending zones. Now, sure, you'd imagine some some no vending zones could make sense. Maybe there's some like really quiet neighborhoods or some residential areas. No, the no vending zones were some of the busiest parts of the city. We're talking the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We're talking Crypto.com Arena. We're talking Dodger Stadium. It was, to me, a pretty transparent move to just like ensure that there's like no beef between the city and some of the more powerful uh, players in the city, aka like the Hollywood Business Improvement District, but or like the Hollywood Homeowners Association. What the city argued is that 
having street vendors on the Hollywood Walk of Fame creates hazards, but I mean, have you ever walked there? It's going to be a hazard no matter what, you know? A couple street vendors selling, you know, hot dogs isn't going to change anybody's life. So, needless to say, this all caused a lot of debate, and the debate dragged on following decriminalization in 2016. So, the spark that happened in order to get from decriminalization to legalization happened in 2018. And it came from Sacramento. A state senator by the name of Ricardo Lara, who was a state senator at the time, but is uh, now our state's chief insurance commissioner, which is a real position if you could believe that. Basically, he took an interest and introduced a bill that would decriminalize street vending across the state and set forth regulatory measures which cities could then use to basically enact their own legal street vending programs. When Governor Brown signed this into law in 2018, it basically meant that the L.A. city politicians that were dealing with coming up with the policies at City Hall had no excuse but to legalize street vending. So... The bill passes, Los Angeles is swift to approve regulations, and finally legalize street vending in November of 2018. So that's kind of the last major action, as I understand it, that happened in the fight to legalize street vending. But remember those not-so-good restrictions we were talking about before, like the two-vendor-per-block caps and uh, specifically the no-vending zones? Well... Those are still part of the infrastructure of Los Angeles's legal street vending program. So, as you can imagine, there are still a lot of vendors out there who are fighting for the right to be able to sell their goods in locations where some of these vendors have been trying to sell for decades. You know, there are vendors who have made the Hollywood Walk of Fame their home, their place of business, and now they're being told that, yes, street vending is legal, but not here. In fact, one street vendor was quoted as saying, yeah, look, it's legal now, but it doesn't really do me a lot of good. I can't, I still can't go to work where, uh, where I plan to go to work every day. So we're in a situation now where a lot of good has been achieved, but there's still a lot of work left to do. And there are other issues that have been cropping up too. For example, last year, LA Taco put out a great article examining some of the harassment that street vendors have been incurring, not just at the hands of law enforcement, but just, you know, you're outside working every day. You can be the target of some criminal or petty theft violence, you know? So... This has resulted in a lot of vendors developing mental health issues, needing to relocate their businesses to areas where there maybe isn't as much foot traffic and therefore as much commerce. For example, in that story, there was uh, an anecdote of a vendor who was operating somewhere near the Arts District, I believe, and because of the constant uh, harassment and threats they were facing, relocated to Palmdale, um, and as you can imagine, 
business in Palmdale is pretty different from business in the Arts District. So there's still a lot that needs to be done to protect our street vendors. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm really excited to speak with Rudy about, yes, how far the battle for street vending has come, but also where we're going next, what needs to happen next, and what we can do. And for those of you who are out there and are thinking, okay, well, A, how big is this problem? How many people does this affect? And B, why should I care about this? Well, there are about 50,000 street vendors in Los Angeles. And that was an estimate that I was able to find from many years ago. So chances are that it's ticked up since then. In fact, some estimates showed that during the pandemic, there were probably as many as 80,000 street vendors on our streets. A lot of those vendors aren't even selling food. Approximately 40,000 of those 50,000 are selling other goods like, you know, headphones, clothes, you know, jewelry, uh, whatever, whatever may be. About 10,000 of those 50,000 vendors are selling food. Things like bacon-wrapped hot dogs, tamales, quesadillas, ice cream, the fruit that we mentioned about the fruit carts earlier uh, on in the episode. If you're thinking about what benefit do these street vendors provide other than just, quote-unquote, taking away business from brick and mortars? Well, they provide about $500 million in economic stimulus. That is the estimate. Not to mention that the supply chain of street vendors is exceptionally local. Uh, Street vendors report that about 70% of the things that they buy, the supplies, the food, is all local. They're getting all of those things from local businesses. So it's creating an economic stimulus in Los Angeles that goes far beyond just helping these individual street vendors achieve economic mobility. Another key benefit that I think is underrated when it comes to street vendors is that they create more vibrant and therefore safer sidewalks. You know, there's nothing scarier than working. I mean, there there are scarier things, but it can be pretty scary to walk down a street and it just be completely deserted. You know, if anything happens, who do you call? What happens? It's It's proven that sidewalks where activity is happening are less likely to incur things like petty theft or, you know, more serious crime. So the addition of street vendors and all of the folks that street vendors attract actually brings down crime on the sidewalks where the street vendors are vending. So, you know, do we want more vibrant streets? I think the answer is yes, especially when those vibrant streets come with additional safety. And finally, you know, it's not to be underestimated the pathway to economic mobility that street vending creates for certain populations that don't have a ton of other ways to get ahead. People like veterans, immigrants, undocumented immigrants especially. So I think there's a lot of reasons why people should care about the plight of street vendors uh, beyond the fact that there are a lot of them. There's also just a lot of good that they do for the community. So look... Was this a perfect recap of the state of street vending in L.A.? Absolutely not. I probably got a lot of things wrong. There are probably other things, uh, other perspectives out there that I haven't quite considered. So please, uh, if you have other perspectives to share, other ideas, any questions that you want us to explore, please get in the DMs. But 
I'm really excited that now uh, we're going to be transitioning to speak to one of the advocates that's been at the center of a lot of this, and that's Rudy Espinoza. Coming right up. Today, I am so excited to be joined by Rudy Espinoza, the Executive Director of Inclusive Action for the City. Rudy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for uh, making time for us. So I've been really excited to have you on. I really want to get into some exciting topics like street vending in LA. But first, I want to hear about Rudy. Where are you from and and, and uh, what ties you to Los Angeles? Are you born and raised here? Yes, I am. I was born in East LA and I was raised in West Covina, which is in the San Gabriel Valley in, uh, in the eastern part of LA County. Um, I've been in LA my whole life. I've been in the city and LA city proper for the last 20 years. Um, wow. And uh, man, I'm getting old. But yeah, I've been here for a long time and I really care about LA. I think it's the best city in the world. And um, I love the people here in our neighborhoods and our community. And um, we have a lot of problems here, but we also have a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I've been here like 12 years. And every time I say that out loud, I almost can't believe it, you know. Uh, so you are an urban planner by trade, is that right? That's right. So how did you gravitate towards that as a career? Well, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I share with folks that when I was a kid, I wanted to get rich. Like that was my my agenda. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a in a in a household that was led by a single mom, and she worked really hard for us. And she was a waitress in a restaurant, and she took care of me and my brother uh, through that job. But it was, you know, we didn't have a lot. You know, she worked really hard, and she would always say, "Hey, if you want to, if you don't want to work like me, you have to you have to go to school." And so I did, and I majored in business in undergrad because my mission was to get money and to take care of my family. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, in college, I was, uh, I took an ethnic studies course that really changed the direction of my career because I began to realize that, you know, a lot of families were dealing with things that uh, like my, like my family was, and there was a lot of folks that didn't have resources. And so it was less about, it became less about my family getting money it was more about how do we all get money and mm -hmm. i really became interested in how do we build community and how do we make our community stronger and i went into urban planning because i didn't want to go work for the man with a business degree i was like i need to do something different and i fell into urban planning uh because um I realized that it was a study of cities and communities and all the different elements that make a community what it is. And I thought it was like a really cool field for me to like know how I was going to play a role. Right. And yeah. um, that's how I came into urban planning. That's really cool. And, and, and so when you set out to do urban planning, did you already have an idea of the types of issues that you were going to be passionate about or did those sort of come up along the way? No, I mean, I, I went into grad school with this sort of revolutionary fervor. Like I was like, I want to like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to like build community power and I want to like, you know, help, help our community and, you know, f you know, dismantle all these systems. And then when I went into school, like I, my, my classmates, like it was just an awesome experience. And I really got to, I really got clear that, if I wanted to really help people, I had to understand how money worked. 
and how it worked in communities and how it didn't work. And so mm-hmm. then um, I started to really refine my sort of my personal mission statement around capital. And I, I got really focused on like, okay, you know, I may not care about getting rich myself anymore, but I do have to understand how it works. And so that that was like the beginning of my career um, in economic development and thinking about capital access is like, like just realizing that it was important for our community to know how money works. Yeah. And so did I read in your bio that you started a nonprofit straight out of school? Is that is that right? Or did you work somewhere else before? No, I had a couple of uh, had two or three gigs before I came to work at the place that I work at now. Um, and during those jobs, I was I, I, I helped to be, start the organization that I work at now. Um, so it wasn't right after grad school. Right after right after grad school, I went to go work at a consulting firm that was working with banks, helping them think about how to make responsible investments. And um, then I went to go work at the AARP Foundation, which is the like the, the foundation arm of AARP, which is an advocacy organization that supports people over 50. And then I went to go work at another organization in South LA that was focused on microlending. But through most of this time, I was helping to form inclusive action. Yeah, got it. And 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 that's incredible. I can't even find the time to like work out sometimes during the day. So the fact that you like, you know, had time to think about starting an entire new organization while while having that other job helping people is, is pretty incredible. Now, talk us through the mission of, of the organization you you uh, you set up, because obviously now when when I look up inclusive action for the city, it's very tied to that mission you were stating before about building capital with a specific eye. Sometimes it seems towards street vending and enabling, um, you know, people to be able to to engage in economic activities like that. How did you how did you gravitate towards that? Well, you know, I think that one thing that I'll clarify is that, uh, like, yeah, so I'm kind of similar, like, how do you find time? But I'm I'm really, like, locked into this work. I'm really passionate about it. And um, I, I do want to say that in the beginning, I, I wasn't the only founder. Um, I was part of a group of people. And so that's how, like, the genesis of the organization started was with a group of friends. It was, it was convened by our founding board chair, Alfred, who I spoke to today and is doing well. He's an attorney. And there was a lot of other amazing leaders like Ginger Hitzke and Ricardo Mireles and other people that came together. And so, uh, Luca, if you, if you can imagine, it was a group of friends mm-hmm. that came together to, to share their work. Um, and to dream up a different way about doing uh, supporting our communities. That was like the genesis of inclusive action. It was it was meant it was a space for us to experiment and to think differently about community development. Over time, we began to formalize how we would do that, and um, we we came on our mission. We came to our mission, uh, which is about building strong local economies, because we realized that we needed at least two levers to build strong local economies. We needed to, to advocate for new policies that helped our communities. And we also had to think about how we get money into the hands of our community members today. And so that's really the two big levers that Inclusive Action uses, is that we have an advocacy division that advocates for communities, and then we have a lending division that focuses on providing microloans and even grants to entrepreneurs in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got some pretty cool case studies from what I know for both of those levers. Um, mm-hmm. 
I'm, I guess let's start with, with the latter, right? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Los Originales Tacos Árabes de Puebla. Um, I, I, uh, I understand that you did some work with them, actually, to, I'm assuming, in that bucket, provide them capital they needed to take their business to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, um, Merced and that whole family is, like, is kind of, um, is a microcosm of what L.A. is, which is, like, a city of workers and visionaries. And that family had a vision. Um, Merced, the matriarch, had a vision for her business, which is, like, hey, I want to have a food truck. She has a bigger vision than that, but, like, I'll let you, she could tell you that herself. But, mm -hmm. you know, they, they were working really hard, and they had a popular... Um, uh, vending business and they needed uh, resources to get to the next stage, which is to get a food truck and make sure that it looked beautiful and was, you know, able, you know, and, and it was able to sort of help build their capacity to serve more people. And like many entrepreneurs, they have everything, they have everything that they need to be successful, except the money. And so inclusive action played a really, really small role in helping her buy um, providing capital so they could finish their food truck, which is the food truck that that they use with the, with the wrap from that has the art from Ernesto Yerena, you know. So um, mm -hmm. there's so many entrepreneurs like that that I think it's important for listeners to be aware of is that our city is full of visionaries that just simply don't have access to capital. And yeah. if we provide if we connect them to that capital, they're going to do good things. And Tacos Árabes is just one example. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure you could list off a bunch of others, but the the other lever to that is are the policies, right? Um, and you all have played a a part in that. I understand. I, I understand that you know IAC was involved in something called the LA Street Vendor Campaign. I, I'm curious to know sort of what that was all about. Um, you know what what was the policy network before that, and and what has it become since? A little bit ago, I shared how the organization started and how it was, it was volunteer driven for the first few years with a group of friends and leaders. Um, and back then, one of the first research projects we took on was research on small businesses during the recession in 2008. Mm -hmm. And we were really inspired by the vendors that we saw in our community. And so we were surveying them, um, specifically in Boyle Heights. And the vendors were telling us what they were experiencing. And many of them were saying, hey, like, I'm doing this because I, I have a job, but it's not paying enough for my family, or I don't have a job, and this is the only thing I could do. And um, But all of them were talking about the fact that they were always vulnerable to law enforcement coming to take them away, take, mm -hmm. taking their stuff. And so we began to reach out to other organizations in the city, um, and we recognized that L.A. was one of the biggest cities in the country that did not have a system for street vendors, that street vending, even though it's so beloved in LA, was essentially illegal. And when and without a legal infrastructure, vendors were, were always vulnerable to law enforcement coming in and, and, and confiscating their equipment or, give, or giving them misdemeanor penalties. And so, so around two thousand that real quick. So basically I'm a street vendor and you know I've got my my you know cooktop set up. I've I, I, Law enforcement can come up and just confiscate that and give me a fine, basically. That's right. That's right. And so we were, uh, we thought that this was a problem, that these vendors were not criminals and we needed to work to change that policy and create a, you know, legalize it. And so back in 2009, 2010, we formed 
uh, we co-founded the LA Street Vendor Campaign that worked to legalize street vending in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, this has been a vendor-led campaign. It has always been a vendor-led campaign. And organizations like ours is just sort of a backstop and a supporter to the vendors. But over mm -hmm. the years, we've been successful in doing that. Um, in 2016, we um, uh, were able to pass some legislation in the city of LA that decriminalized sidewalk vending, which means that they wouldn't get misdemeanor penalties anymore, which is mm -hmm. awesome. And then in 2018, we passed a state law, Senate Bill 946, that basically created a, a system for vending throughout the state. Mm -hmm. um, which then spurred LA to finally legalize vending here. And then just this past year, 2022, we passed Senate Bill 972 that created a pathway for street food vendors to finally get their health permits, which mm. food vendors need to have because they're selling food. Yeah. So, so now street vending is technically legal in Los Angeles, right? Uh, yes. Now it's, now there's a clear pathway for vendors to go and get their permit. Got um, it. So now, it still requires a permit. They just have a way to get it now. Exactly. And, and there's still a lot of challenges with that. And I think I'd want listeners to be clear about that, that, you know, just because these laws were passed doesn't mean that now everything is amazing because it's not. Um, yeah. Any law, the, the passing the law is unfortunately just like one of the early steps. The, yeah. big, the big task we have in front of us is making sure that our city and county and our state are implementing these laws appropriately. And we know that if a, if a city or county don't want to do something, they're probably not going to do a very good job at it, you know? So our advocacy work is still continuing to make sure that our region is implementing these new tools in the appropriate way. Yeah. And so you mentioned that there are still hurdles and problems with the current infrastructure. And one thing I've seen the current legal infrastructure, I should say. And one thing I've seen reported in the news recently is coverage about no-go zones. Um, yeah. Meaning like places like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? Where it's not, or like even with a permit, does that mean that even with a permit, street vendors can't go there to sell food? That's right. Uh, these are no vending zones. Um, and so when in 2018, when the city of LA legalized street vending, they did that. And then they also said, you know what, we're also going to include these areas where no vending will be allowed. So for listeners, it's places like Hollywood Boulevard, LA Live, um, Hollywood Bowl, um, you know, uh, Placito Olvera, I think is the no vending zone, Exposition Park. So these are like Ooh. big tourist attractions. And Dodger Stadium is one. And so the vendors that are vending there, even if they do have a city permit, they're vulnerable to citation because these are no vending zones. Yeah. And so one thing that is happening, and again, this is like the importance of implementation of a law, is mm -hmm. that um, the law does allow for cities to customize their system, but there has to be a very clear public safety reason to do that. And in this case, um, our coalition partners feel that there was no case made, that these are just arbitrary decisions. Mm -hmm. And so right now, um, some vendors who are being sort of have seen the consequences of these no vending zones, um, as well as uh, some organizations, including ours, are part of a lawsuit with the city. To, and we're asking the city to uh, abolish these no vending zones. And so basically the feeling is that, let me get this right, the, ar the 
no vending zones selected were done so arbitrarily. Correct. Like that, that, and I mean, to me, it seems like not, it seems less arbitrary. It seems more like they're almost trying to make sure street vendors aren't at places where they know they're going to get a lot of business. Uh, Maybe not so as not to compete with other, you know, I I don't know, the stadiums and whatnot that are selling food. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that, but to me, it seems like there's a clear correlation between places that get high foot traffic and places that are not no that are no vending zones. That's correct. Uh, well, you, you know, that's right. I think that that's what we, we are seeing um, during the pandemic. For example, um, the city of LA created the Alfresco program, which is a program that helps um, you know brick and mortar businesses, especially use the sidewalk for outdoor dining. And um, it's a great idea, Luca. Like, I think it's awesome. Like, we should use our sidewalks for this stuff, just like other big cities. And in the no vending zones, um, like Hollywood Boulevard, for example, businesses were using the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they were allowed to use the sidewalk, but they banned vending. So, like, there's a little, there's contradictions that were taking place. And that's why we feel like, the case was never made. Why? Why is it okay for um, this type of business to use the sidewalk, but not this other one? You know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the the legal team and the vendors feel like that they have, they feel really wronged by this. And so, we hope that we can, you know, um, get the get the program modified in a way that gives vendors an opportunity to do their work and. Especially in Hollywood, Luca, some of these vendors have been out there for decades. Like they're yeah. not new. You know, and so we just want we want to give them they want to participate in a system. They definitely want to have good relations with brick and mortar businesses, but they, they, you know, they want a fair chance. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know that there's changes happening right now to the alfresco rules. Is that an opportunity to perhaps get some of these changes for street vendors done as well? I, you know, I think so. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I saw the first sort of um, drafts around how they want to reform the Alfresco program. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I share often is that I don't see this as like a brick and mortar versus street vendor issue. Like, I think there's enough for all of us to go around. I hope the Alfresco program stays and I hope it it remains easy for all types of businesses to use. Um, And I think that our, our city's so big and awesome that there's room for all of us to to build businesses, you know? So I hope that, that your, um, I was going to say, is that the argument you use? Because I, I do, I have heard from, you know, brick and mortar businesses who oppose increased street vending, right? Yes. Yeah. And that is the argument that I use. And I think that um, part of the challenge, and again, this goes back to policy implementation is that some brick and mortar businesses may have very, you know, real grievances around vending. Like maybe there's a vendor that, you know, that's doing something terrible in front of their store or I don't know, you know, and like, I think that Mm -hmm. um, that to ameliorate those things, we need to invest in a program that really focuses on education and really defines what the, what the rules are clearly and really supports businesses of all types to, to participate and I think mm-hmm. right now we don't have that. We're not investing in that. We're investing in enforcement measures and we're saying, just leave. We don't want you here. Here's the no vending zone, you know? And so yeah. none of that is really helping the problem. And I think that I, I'd love to see a city where that has like a really robust 
open air division that's focused on like, hey, we want brick and mortar business to use the, the sidewalk. We also want street vendors. We everybody should be clear about how they how they participate in here. We want to make sure that there's no issues. But that takes a lot of education and on the ground work. And right now yeah. we're not investing in that. We're investing in armed officers who go out there and give out citations. It sounds a little like how we approach homelessness in the city. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. Well, look, we talked a little bit about how we can sort of enable street vendors to to get out there and be able to do so legally. But I've also seen a lot of coverage, especially from LA Taco last year, on the physical threats and uh, resulting mental health crises that are facing our street vendors. I'm curious – what do you think can be done, not just to allow our street vendors to be operational, but to protect them? Well, you know, I think that um, there's a, there's people that are doing really important work of like going out to, you know, there's some activists that are like uh, organizing like buyouts or the vendors that are, you know, facing threats or have been threatened. There's folks that I've seen mm. that are trying to train them to like fight back and you know, I think that these are all like really important things. I think we need to care for our vendors. Like that's like the ultimate um, value that I would want to project out into the world. But mm-hmm. I also wonder, and I think is that, you know, it, it like having a different environment for our vendors um, and a different experience begins with us. It really begins with us. And it begins with our government um, that is that is led by us in theory. And if our government isn't, honoring vendors if our if our government isn't honoring vendors how do we expect others to honor them you know yeah and yeah we we, we're not investing in a in a system that really allows street vendors to thrive and so when a vendor um might see something unusual on a street they don't want to call anybody because they're probably feeling vulnerable themselves and so I think one way, just one way to, to protect our vendors is to make sure that we're investing in a public infrastructure that honors them and brings them in, you know? <laughs> you talk a lot about the type of city you want to see Los Angeles be. I'm curious, are there any cities out there that you think are doing a good job that we could emulate? I think that we can take um, small uh you know positive attributes from cities all over the world and i think that um you know my, my one of my colleagues just got back from ethiopia and um you know she's ethiopian she was visiting family and she gave us a presentation of like vendors in ethiopia mm-hmm. and it was like fascinating like to see how vendors operated and and it was interesting because in that in ethiopia there's formal vendors and informal vendors too but mm-hmm. what was interesting is that the like that sometimes you couldn't even distinguish them because like uh like street vendors are just part of the culture and they had like dedicated areas and streets (laughs) they were like this is like where vendors operate and um you know there was like an acknowledgement of like this is where i go for this particular craft or this particular food and i don't know like i think that that's really inspiring like the pacific northwest also has like vacant lots that they've utilized with with vendor carts and they're using their space in a different way. And that's awesome. New York is obviously a thriving street food scene. And like, um, you know, they have, they've done really interesting things with healthy food. 
engaging street vendors and getting healthy food out into communities that don't have grocery stores. So yeah. each of these cities have, have, have their own issues. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, there's little things you can take from each of them to create the best program here in LA. Right. Yeah. I feel like the, uh, the kind of ironic thing is that a lot of, a lot of businesses that are now brick and mortars or, you know, and that have risen to tremendous success started as street vendors and they're, often celebrated by the communities, oftentimes politicians and whatnot, when they've achieved that success. But it's just so ironic that they had to achieve that success in a way that wasn't even legalized or the this, this space wasn't even made for them to begin with, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a big irony. And I don't know, like, you know, we talk a lot about the American dream and how small businesses are the backbone of our economy. And like, I don't know, you can't get smaller than a street vendor. And like, if you're really thinking about like, man, how are we going to weather this recession? And how are we going to really create jobs? I don't know. Like, I feel like why wouldn't you engage these entrepreneurs that like risk everything to set up like a business on a sidewalk, like risk, like, like get, they get, they're in danger sometimes. Yeah. And like, they're still out there working, hustling. Like the vendors talk about getting up super early every day, like to prepare and to, you know, like that's hustle. Yeah. And I'd, I'd want to invest in that hustle than anything else to begin, yeah. you know? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, uh, it reminds me of, of during the pandemic when you saw all these home businesses opening and whatnot, like people suddenly recognize that, hey, this is a way that I can hustle and make a living right now when my back is up against the wall. And I feel like there was a lot more compassion for that then. Um, I wish we could extend some of that today. But I am curious, what can people do who are interested in helping? What, what, where would you direct them? Well, I think that um, – well, I think if, if folks are interested in helping, I think one thing that I would do is um, – I think I would really just say it does begin with you. <laughs> so like take care of your vendor uh, in your neighborhood, like go support them. Uh, some friends of mine are always like, you got to tip your street vendor. And I think that that's amazing. Tip your street vendor. If you see your street vendor struggling with the, with a crazy customer or a neighbor, like, I don't know, like step, step up for them and make sure that that vendor knows that they have someone in their community that has their back. So it begins yeah. with us, like these small actions. Um, I think folks that want to get more involved can definitely reach out to Inclusive Action. And, and we work with a lot of great organizations that provide various services like Community Power Collective that's organizing vendors all over the city. Um, you know, public counsel uh, for the attorneys out there that want to help. Like they, they are amazing pro bono lawyers that help vendors and help them figure out their citation issues and are working with us on, on protecting rights all over the state. Um, so there's a lot of great organizations out here doing good work and, you know, just get plugged in. Yeah. Well, Rudy, thank you so much for joining us. Before I let you go, you got to tell me this is a food podcast at the end of the day. So where do you like to eat? Where do I like to eat? I mean, man, I can't pick. I can't. I can't tell you one person. You know, one place, Luca. But of course, I'll tell but you you're that, going to lunch. I'm like Rudy. We're going to lunch right now. Where are you taking me? Um, you know what? I think that the person that I'm going to see shortly is uh, a vendor um, who is uh, famous in our campaign, Caridad, who's one of the founders of the campaign and has been a leader. So I'd probably be like, Luca, you want to come with me to her house? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she's, she, about. she's in Boyle Heights and she sets up, um, 
on off of fourth street and like she's there and she's really active and really connected in the vendor community and she's one of the ogs but you know um there's vendors all over the city that are doing good work you know so we need to support all of them Yeah, yeah. Okay, Caridad and Bull Hyatt, so I'll keep my ear out for that one. I, I can't wait to see the LA Times food section write about her. Um, now, uh, uh, where can people find you, Rudy? Uh, they could find me online. Um, you know, I'm pretty accessible. Uh, our organization we organizational website is inclusiveaction.org. Um, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You could, you could find me pretty easily. Awesome. We'll put a link to your handles and to Inclusive Action's handles in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining us. Right on. Thank you, Luca. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Rudy Espinoza for joining us. Look, we covered a lot of ground in this podcast, and I will be including links in the show notes. But it's an incredibly thorny issue, and it won't be the last time we'll be discussing it. And I'm sure that many of you out there will have thoughts. So please, by all means, send us a DM, get in our comments, let us know what you think. But in the meantime, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, Give our podcast a rating, a review, and if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at The LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N.